This is KBOO Portland. Coming up is poetry and everything. Hello, good evening. Welcome to KBOO's Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your host, talking into a microphone at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, USA. You, listening, are somewhere, anywhere, on this planet, thanks to the amazing fact that this show will be on the web forever or until the apocalypse. If you've been listening to Poetry and Everything regularly, or even now and then, you know that the past several months have included shows with various formats. That is, what I mean by that, not what had been the standard in the first three years of the show. This one, this December show, also is going to be different in both format and content. Last month, in conversation with Tiel Aisha Ansari, who is you regular listeners probably know, the host of KBOO's Wider Window Poetry. Teal asked me if I'd ever thought of presenting a reading of my own work on the show. Teal knows I'll be stopping the monthly show schedule after January, so she was serious. After my first startled moment, I got serious too, and this show, my penultimate, is the result of her thoughtful response. So, without, as they say, further ado... Here is that reading. Thank you, Teal. This is KBOO, Portland Community Radio. I always like to open a reading in person with what I call OPW, other people. It sounds like a radio (laughs) station. Um, OPW, other people's work. And I'm going to do that because this is essentially a reading like those, except flying through the air instead of standing in front of you on a stage. So I'm opening this reading with a poem by B.T. Shaw, a former Portlander who is now expatriated, has lived in the Philippines, Vietnam, is now living in the Netherlands. We hope to see her as often as possible in the future. Thank you, BT. Here's her poem called, What Else Could There Possibly Be? The aspen are waving like girls, their whole bodies saying, so long for now. Your hair snagged on my pink plastic glasses, mine tangled in you. Bye now, bye. All that waving as though we could keep the sky in the sky. Goodbye. I love you. I love everybody. Goodbye. That's B.T. Shaw, folks. We miss her. All right. I'm going to um, be reading my own work and as a really overt expression of reading my own work, I'm going to begin with some poems about my people. This first one is called Nostalgic Smoking and Drinking Poem. My family smoked and drank, talking with lit cigarettes in the corners of their mouths, squinting through rising smoke, blowing it from front room to kitchen to porch, Some of them sent quavering rings drifting down to us, children on the floor who poked fingers through the small ones, put faces forward to be framed by the big ones. No one thought it was good for them, their camels and luckies burning, scarring edges of card tables, but no one knew how really bad it was. Uncles and aunts, cousins in the army, down at the shop and behind the counter, 
Grandfathers gave us empty boxes when they sucked on gold cigars, fat like the wrists of their grandchildren, or skinny brown sticks they held in their teeth like the sugar cubes they strained black tea through, staining their strong teeth after they drank schnapps, they drank vodka, they drank vishnik they made in the basement, they drank sweet purple grape wine on holidays, praising a god they stopped believing in before they lived here, before they came here from there, smoking and drinking on the boat. This one is called Dead Young Mother. My mother died when I was just a baby, so I look for her with the sweet hope of an infant. I look inside the memories of her brothers, the photographs in her album, pasted down in careful little corners. Those sharp little corners make me see the invisible frame. I look for her in my face, my hair, my dreams, my laugh or lips, my smile with teeth. I look for her, too, in the old cemetery. That's where she was last seen, lying down under words, stone-heavy words. If I find her, though, we won't know what to say. She's too young, younger than my grown son. Her eyes are closed over his eyes, gray-blue light. Her hair waves just like mine, its color before silver. This one, moving through the family line, is called the stepmother, or she means well. This is what they're wearing. Hems are going down. Mid-calf length is good on you, slit or pleated in back. Sleeves will be elbow length or push-up. Plum is going to be the big color when school starts. Look, those long leather coats are pearlized. See that silvery white glaze like a pearl? The temperature is not your guide. Even if it's hot in early May, never wear white a minute before Memorial Day. It's easy to remember, no white after Labor Day. September is fall colors. If your mother had lived, you think she would have told you this? No, she wouldn't. She was an attractive woman, but she didn't pay attention to what they were wearing. Her parents were communists. She memorized poetry. They talked about politics at supper every night. What could you expect? Moving along the family tree, this one's called Daddy and the Sunday Funnies After the War in the 40s. I know he brought in the heavy paper, slid the colored pages down to the floor where we, my brothers and I, laid flat on our bellies to read them. But that movement, the giving of pages, placing them before us open, one broad sheet in front of each, I can't see that. I, I know he must have done it because there they'd be. Dick Tracy, Brenda Starr, Terry and the Pirates, framed inside my blue plaid plastic glasses. I don't know how it happened, how they came down to us from him. I can't see the gesture. I can't see him move. The giving is invisible. 
And my dad gets two. Here's another one. <laughs> Here's another one about dad. Um, it's called 86. Today is my father's birthday. He's 86 and thinking maybe, maybe he'll kill himself. 86 himself. He says he wishes there was a button so he could push it. They should have a button, he says. You could just push when you're ready to go. He doesn't know this is his birthday. He's not expecting a birthday. He doesn't expect. He's always surprised to hear my voice on the phone, my voice at the door. He knows me, I think. I believe I give it away, calling him Daddy, saying my own name. I am the daughter. The sons are my brothers, playing tricks like mine, saying their names, wanting to be known getting what we can. When he scatters ideas, we rush in like pigeons under the bench in the park where an old man sits brushing crumbs from his jacket. And then, of course, another generation entirely. My own kid. This one's called Anecdotal Evidence of the Effects of Women's Liberation on Male Children. We are looking out the windows at the city, the mountain. We see the sky all over us. He says, Mom, your apartment is surrounded by parking lots. Then my son, who lives in L.A., a place where no one stops driving long enough to park, opens his silver laptop to show me an experiment in cyber magic. As he clicks his way there, I remember him saying, I know I've been your experiment. The man from Los Angeles didn't know yet. We're all experiments. Everybody's looking for results, conclusions. Everybody's guessing. Everybody's testing, testing, one, two, testing. Nobody ever knows how it'll come out. I made him out of what I had to work with then. Malts, ribs, pizza, the occasional apple, maybe coleslaw with carrots. I was cooking him for nine months the year a clockwork orange was new, and people started using the word sexism. When he was done, we went to school, changing our major, biology to sociology. When my son goes to movies, sits in the dark with Americans watching men hurt women, he gets sick. He wants to leave when men hit women. He says, pushing out through glass doors into California sunshine, this is my mother's fault. She raised me so I can't stand this. Can't just sit there like a normal person. I believe some of these are actual quotes. He might dispute that, but what can I do? As usual, nothing. And the last family poem is about and for, dedicated to my partner. It's called The Man Who Loves Trees for Jonathan. The man who loves trees, loves through the seasons, bare trunk, fat buds, full green, wet red, and their names Sweet gum, cypress, oak, spruce, willow, maple, red bud forest pansy, and their parts, leaf, cone, flower, bark, 
root, branch, ball, twig, needle, lacy fans of rough crochet, pods like cigars, like rattling gourds. He loves their cast-offs, crisp on the ground, their sound under his boots on the trail, rustling, breaking down into dust. He loves, later, their sawn boards, wood, its grain a watery maze, polished, rubbed into light, glowing still with heat from the heart of the tree, like his own heart, pumping dark liquid out to the limbs, out to his own warm hands. Okay, that's it. I'm wrapping up the family section, folks, and I'm moving to what I call in my scribbled notes, which I am now attempting to read for you, classic poems, by which I mean not that I am Shakespeare or Sappho, but um, that they deal with many fo- what many folks think poetry should be, quote-unquote, about. So here's some poems about what poetry should be about, or what I think people think poetry should be about. Here's one called, A Classic Question Considered Within an Early 21st Century Economic and Philosophical Context. While you are reading this, trees are falling in the forest without you there to hear them fall, which means, maybe, they're not falling. Though other listeners, perhaps, are out there when you're not, out there taking responsibility Some of us have to read contemporary poetry. Some of us have to hear trees fall in the forest. Everybody has a job in this poem. It takes a village, small buildings made of wood from fallen trees, as books have been. You and I both know, well, two kinds of jobs, paid and unpaid. The hearing of trees falling in the forest and the reading of contemporary poetry are on the unpaid list. Hardly ever is anyone given cash money to do those jobs, though recompense perhaps is otherwise. The sense of wonder so many bemoan the loss of. Bemoaners not being the ones who hear the trees falling, nor the ones reading contemporary poetry. I realized just now, maybe I should be telling you where these poems are published. It's too late, too late now, folks. Um, But if you want to know where to find some of them, actually many of them, you can go to my website, juditharkana.com, and um, find the book, go to the writing page, find all the books, and many of them will be filled with poems. All right, here's another. Um, in that section that I'm calling the one about what people expect to find in poetry. This one's called Considering the Kitchen. This is actually a prose poem, that contradiction that everyone thinks, excuse me, not everyone, that many people think is totally acceptable and other people think is ridiculous. It's either prose or poetry, they say. What are you talking about? This is one of those, Considering the Kitchen. Our refrigerator is the kind with the freezer on top. My cousin Sheila has one with the freezer on the bottom, which seems like a bad idea because her kids can open it and maybe even the littlest ones fall in and get frozen, especially if Sheila's freezer is as empty as ours. Our freezer has two plastic ice trays with thin cubes, shallow and gray, ice 
slips is what they really are. Also in there, in the door shelf where it slides around when we open the door, is one stick of butter. Remember toaster ovens from before microwaves? You could roast a small chicken in there, right where you made melted cheese sandwiches on the little no-stick tray, the same rack you'd bake potatoes on. Almost everything fit in there and heated up fast. Sometimes we even made toast in ours. We put slices of bread on the rack, took them out fast with our fingertips, and rubbed butter all over them right away. Okay, the juice box is here to stay, but we don't have to love it. We love juice in clear glass bottles, single-serving, kid-size clear glass bottles, thick glass that won't break when it falls down on the kitchen floor, like car windows, glass that won't shatter to stab a three-year-old or sliver into invisible bits that'll cut our feet when we stand at the sink in the dark late at night letting the water run through our fingers. Actually, I, I dedicated that poem I see, I see now in this poem I'm reading to you. I dedicated this to P.T. Shaw, the poet whose work opened the show. And here's yet another in that section called Interdisciplinary Studies in Philosophy and Literature, 20th Century Topics. Some of them said, context is everything. Sometimes they said there can be nothing without context. Nothing can be known without its context. And you can't know a thing or speak of a thing without being part of it. That's another thing some of them said. They used to believe things could be separated, isolated, could be in and of and unto themselves. We don't think that. We know better now. There is no thing itself, though even Virginia Woolf, yes, used that phrase to mean something, something. She was always part of it, whatever it was, the tall desk, the cup of tea, the pen in her hand, stones in her pocket, Leonard. Yet all of it was only what she thought it was, like it's only what you think it is, and me what I think it is. We are only always ever saying what we think it is. Whatever it may be, it is not itself. You are not yourself today or ever. You know how sometimes you can get a little kick out of your own work? That's one of those for me. Small kick, but you know. All right, another, another philosophical poem, but not with the word philosophy in the title this time. This one is quite different in the title. It's called, Okay, All Right, Yes. You think you know what's going to happen, but you don't. You know only what you think is going to happen. And if what you think happens, happens just like you think it will, what'll that prove? Anything? Only maybe this time you got lucky, hit some real good luck, luck so good it makes you think you know something you don't. You think she's coming home. You think he's not lying. You think that shiny elevator won't stall, that bridge won't fall. You think the sun is going to shine in your back door someday. And maybe it will. Maybe it'll shine in right on you. But 
What'll that prove? You think your luck'll change when it's bad, and when it's good, it won't. You think you'll live until you die, and hey, okay, all right, yes, you can have that one. That one's got to come true. I just realized as I was reading this for you folks, um, this poem was sparked some years back by the bridge that suddenly fell down. I think it was in Minnesota, and everyone was stunned, and no one realized that it hadn't been cared for, that it hadn't been examined. And I live, as many of you listening may, in a city of bridges. Portland is often even called Bridgetown. So that made a big impression on me. I thought, hmm, all these bridges. I go back and forth across those bridges all the time. And then in the way that that sort of thing happens, this poem came out of my brain. Who knew it was even in there? Or was it? This one is part of a quartet. This next poem, uh, which I call the Lois Quartet, named for the late, great Lois Nowicki. Uh, this of the four is the one called Lois, Questions. And it begins with an epigraph from the wonderful poet Jane Cooper. The line is, suppose we could telephone the dead. What's it like out where you are? Is it anything we make up, alive and imagining? Is it something I can know? Or so much not what we think, I won't know even if you tell me. Is it forever? Is it like religion says? Do you laugh? Is there music? Is there eating, sleeping? And if you sleep, do you dream? Do you have work? Are the dead a good audience? Do they get it? Can you go where you want? Or is death organized by time and geography like living? Can you fly? Can you see me? Are you coming back? Will you come home to the prairie where you used to be or go somewhere else and live in another language? Will you be someone else, a wolverine or a stalk of corn? You might be tomatoes or apples or spinach on Steve's farm. Do you still have cancer when you're dead or does it go away after it kills you? Are you angry? Or is there peace in death? What is peace? Can you tell me? The other three have also appeared in the world outside of my head um, and have been published. And hopefully you can find them if you care to from that website thing I mentioned. Um, here's another one that's possibly going to make me cry. I hope not. This would be so embarrassing. I mean, gosh, she can't even read her own work without weeping. This one's called Hard Times, Fast River. Don't you just hate it when you start to cry and other people think you're crying because of something they know, but you're not. You're not. You're crying because what's happening has knocked the heart of your memory sideways. And the pain the pain of that sideways heart is making you sob. Sobs struggle out around the pushed-in part of your lungs where the heart is pressing and your throat is too thin. Sobs fill it up. You can't breathe. You can't stop crying. And the people keep hugging you, touching you, saying they understand when they don't. They don't. 
They don't even know they don't. So I, now it's ironic. At the time when I put these together, I didn't know that the Lois poem was going to make me an example of the Hard Times poem. But there you have it, folks, Truth in Poetry. This one is called Light Falling Here. <clears throat> Always, writers say, the light on the water shines like diamonds, shines like gold. But the truth is that gold and that diamonds want only to shine like the light on the water. Just now, on the early morning river, every spangle is a bird flashing tiny wings of light. The sun has thrown a sheet of hammered gold over the slow skin of the dawn river. A raft of light turns on dark water, tethered to the boat dock, moving with the river. And I, waking here, dream the sun falling down in the ocean, light in the heart of the sea, fire at the heart of the sea. My heart is on fire in the water, light burns in the heart of the sea, seawater skin on the body of sunset, sunset of fire at the watery edge of the world, fire all there at the edge of the world, burning the skin of the water, wet sand a mirror for fire in the water, sunset a tipped bowl of flame. I ask myself again, can I be in love with the light on the water? so in love that I long for that light on the top of a mountain and on the prairie need to touch it with my eyes. In forest, the light comes pouring all down, gilding a pool where sun finds a break in the trees, and I, mouth open, lips burning, kneel, blinded inside the blaze. I yearn for the liquid full moon, running silk silver all night, crave lightning on through the wash of the rain, weep at stars that tip waves in the lake. I want to see fire clouds up in the sky, their water hearts pierced by the sun, to drown through geometry gleaming in light on the floor of a sun-struck pond. Now again, sun falls into ocean, moon rises out in far sky, they stream to me here on the shore. Light shivers the water. Gold silver crosses the sky, crosses the world. This whole world coming to me. The shivering, glimmering path leads to me, just here to my face, to my feet. Moons and suns rising and falling in water. Light falling here into love. That poem came out of it took years, not that I was working on it for years, but some of it came from staring stupidly into the sun um, on the uh, west coast of Oregon, down in Bandon, near the bottom of the state. Some of it came from looking at the Charles River in Massachusetts. Talk about different locations. Some of it came from hiking along smaller, uh, small and smaller rivers here in Oregon and making notes. You know how writers are, scribbling on a little pad of paper that I pulled out of my pocket with a pencil, even sometimes in the rain. And then later, much later, thinking, oh, maybe this, maybe this, maybe that, maybe that, and winding up with a piece that was made from the light on the water in several different places. 
Now I'm going to read you a fabulous sentence, which I did not write, written by one of the great ones of our time and this country, Toni Morrison, who said, It seems to me that the best art is political, and you ought to make it irrevocably political and unquestionably beautiful at the same time. I read that some years back in, I think it was in an interview, collection of interviews with Ms. Morrison, and immediately said, yes, yes, that is so true. And of course, um, immediately wrote it down everywhere. I think I even have it somewhere on my website. Um, and now I've just read it to you. So here we go with some poems that are uh, decidedly and overtly political. This one is dedicated to Lanny Joe Lee, who owns the Clinton Street Theater with her lovely husband right here in Portland, Oregon. Um, here's for you, Lanny Joe. This one's called Sealed Birth Records Challenged in Court. In the old days, everything was secret. You went away to what they called a home, or you stayed inside your own, hiding your belly when you knew you could not keep it. All the signs were danger signs, breasts heavy with yellow cream, darkening nipples, widening hips, desires for food, sex, sleep, all growing with the child, while you stood wide-footed, moving side to side like a broad-bottomed boat, riding the long tide going out without you. Salty water shifting with a small internal moon, until eclipse when they took the child away and you'd never see it, never know its name, never know if the eyes darkened, mind sharpened, curious about you, if they talked about you, if they said you were first, said you held the baby first. Lonnie Joe has shown at the Clinton Street on several occasions some excellent documentary films um, and I would also remind folks to watch the fiction film, Philomena, about adoption as it has been practiced as an industry for far too long. Here's a poem called, uh, these next two actually are from a collection of mine called What If Your Mother, which is a book that includes poems and monologues about what I like to call uh, motherhood concerns and not the kind you usually find, let's say, in Hallmark cards. That one, for instance, the um, adoption poem, and now these next two. This one's called You Don't Know. You think I didn't care about that baby. Didn't wonder if we'd like each other when she turned 14. Didn't think he'd follow anywhere his older brother went. You think we'd take them out like gangsters, disappear them like generals. You don't know how it works then, do you? You don't know what sits on both sides of the scale, what it means to decide what I got and what I gave, gave that baby I didn't have, baby who couldn't make me laugh, applesauce upside down on her head, couldn't make me cry, taking his first step right off the porch. You don't even know that this is not about regret. You don't know one blessed I say blessed thing about it. And another one, actually the title poem from the collection I just alluded to. Um, what if your mother? Sometimes when you talk to them in argument, they say, what if your mother had an abortion? And then I say, she did. 
because it's true. Only that one wasn't me. It was somebody else. Nobody but my mother ever knew that baby. But they mean me. The people who say it mean, what if she aborted me? Like, that's hard to answer. They're so stupid. Because what if she miscarried or gave me away? What if I drowned at the beach when I was three? What if she loved someone else, not my dad? Then I wouldn't be here either. What if? What if? What's the point of asking this phony question? All you could ever answer is, then everything would be different, wouldn't it? One thing, sure, I wouldn't be standing here talking to some jerk who asked me that dumb question. I wouldn't be mad at my mother for doing it, would I? I think you just have to tell these people, get real, that's not what it's all about. I've written a lot about abortion in both prose and poetry. Um, and I took a fly at, a shot, a jump, at um, writing about immigration a while back and then um, most recently brought a collection back into print uh, called, it's a chapbook from Eberhardt Press here in um, Portland. It's called Fourth Period English. And it was sparked actually by the young people who have now, for the last decade or so in the United States, been called the dreamers. I was lucky enough to spend time with these kids, and I mean kids, I'm talking 13, 14, 15 years old, plus a few older folks, and then people my age, even older yet, um, sitting around a dining room table, putting out a mailing, listening to them talk about their lives, how their parents brought them here. And um, to my astonishment, really, this does happen, people. You, some of you know this, some of you don't. You can trust me. I'm telling you the truth. Sometimes this happens. To my complete astonishment, these kids um, sort of made other kids, fiction kids, um, kids I made up, come into my brain and talk and talk and talk and talk. So this chapbook has 25 spoken poems, each one spoken by a character or a group of characters. One, for instance, is by the boys' soccer team. Um, one is by two girlfriends together. Um, but what they're all about is their teacher, Ms. Solomon, has given them the assignment in fourth period English, hence the title, to discuss um, immigration in literature and life. And naturally, they argue, not to say fight, and have some disagreements. Um, I'm going to read two of those. Um, this one, it, many of the people in the book uh, speak with a little Spanish in their poetry, um, and, and others do not. They come from other places, and so on. Um, this one is called Becky Talking. You speak the language pretty good, except you have that accent. You don't sound right when you're talking English. You say it like different, different from how it really is. My family came here a hundred years ago. My grandma says they had to, had to leave home. She tells me stories. She has the hat her own grandma wore on the boat coming here. She worked in a factory making shirts instead of high school. She couldn't read in English. So that's why I'm asking, why did you come? Did you have to leave home? And this one, Aurelia talking. She's much later in the book after hearing uh, many other people speak. 
You think we all come from Mexico and up here? Maybe that's the most. But also Guatemala. Do you know where that is? And even Colombia, far away as that is from this huerta, far from these apples and pears. I wonder if you even know these other countries are in the world with you. Like, you call your country America, but it isn't. This place is only Los Estados Unidos, the United States of America, a chunk of a chunk, a piece of a piece, del norte. Comprendes? Do you know Canada has more land up there on top of you? Do you know Brazil is almost as big and it's only one part of America del Sur, the whole south? You think you know where you are, where everybody is and should be, but do you? It's my girl, Aurelia. All right. Um, here are two. I put these in at the last minute. You're going to forgive me. I know you are because you're thoughtful and kind people. They don't fit the conventional categories or even unconventional categories, or even my own categories that I made up for this show. But here they are. Um, this one is because it's a December show, and so everybody's all Dickens and Dickensian and Ebenezer Scrooge and all of that. And I wrote this. I never even sent it out to see if anyone wanted to publish it. It's very tiny. I still like it. I don't know. Maybe I should try to get it published. R write me a note at my um, Kebu email and tell me what you think. It's called It's Never Not Both. It's always the best of times and the worst of times, isn't it? It's always complicated. Let's remember that and laugh like the Dickens. And even if you don't like it, you have to forgive me. Okay, here's another in the same mood or, mo or similar mood or mode. Um, after I had cancer, I thought for sure I was going to be writing seriously tragic cancer poems. Unfortunately, that has not come to pass. I shouldn't say unfortunately. Maybe it would be not great. But in any case, what has happened is that I write funny, silly, jokey chuckles about cancer. Here's one of them. Uh, this one I actually uh, wrote to another, uh, to a friend who has ex had experience with tumors. It's called Tea for Tumors. Oh, let's get together. Let's have tea and chat. I've heard rumors you've got tumors. I know something about that. I don't know, folks. Maybe the heavy stuff will come next year or in a decade or, my guess, never. Um, and here's a much longer, not too long. I would never read you anything that was too long, um, but notably longer than those two bitsy ones. Um, and this one was actually uh, published in an Oregon uh, magazine, Calix. Um, and I, it's a prose piece. I don't even really know what it is. It's called Persephone Talks to Her Girlfriends on Her Cell Phone. And I put this one in after I bought a pomegranate, which when I go to the grocery store in this season, I often think, oh, yes, get a Persephone. And then I laugh at myself, you silly woman. The words so similar, the association in the myth. Here we go, Persephone. It's so boring here. There's, like, nothing to do. And you know how my phone keeps breaking up? Well, that totally happens with everything down here. There's, like, bad reception on everything. Even my iPad cuts out, like, sometimes. And he still won't let me go on Facebook. He says I can do that when I'm with my mom. He never lets me do anything. And even though I'm supposed to be, like, queen, remember the flower from, you know, that day and those stupid red seeds? Well, those are, like, the only things he even ever gave me. 
No way. How did you even, like, hear about that? But, yeah, no, it's totally true. Those guys were so drunk or maybe, like, I don't know, high. Pirithus was definitely really, like, out of it. Okay, with Theseus, I can't be sure. You know how trippy he is. So anyway, Hades made them, like, sit on this magic couch he has where, like, once you sit there, you can't get up. So, like, they think, yeah, no, totally, Pirithus is still here. But last week, Heracles, they think he's some rock star, got to come down for a visit and take Theseus back home with him when he left. That hardly ever happens. Theseus was really lucky. Yeah, you can say that, but so what about that other girl who was down here? She was a lot older than me and just a mortal, but they said she could go home. Okay, so yeah, she got sent back. But it was totally on a technicality, like in soccer or something. The guy who came to take her back fucked up. He was like a musician, and he played all this really sad music like the kind that can make you cry, and he got the boring old judges all on his side. But then he, the guy, didn't follow even the one dumb rule they gave him. So, yeah, that girl had even more bad luck than me. She should have had her mother come down to get her. Oh, that Judith Arcana, she can't stop writing about motherhood stuff. And now, let's see... A few poems about aging. That's what I do most of the time now. I age. I realize we all do that lifelong, but you know how you just don't notice sometimes your own personal habits and then someone points them out? This is what happens with aging. People do occasionally point it out. This one's called Zombies on Skateboards. We met in the center of the city, near a captive tree in the plaza, a tree locked in a circle of iron bars with sharp points. He was growling, shouting loud, People! Give us your change! He was one of a pack, white kids with dreads, dressed in grimy surplus khaki, holding confused dogs on leashes. Those kids were tattooed with art that looked like money. He reached for my phoenix in flames, held my arm next to his zombies on skateboards. I said, good name for a band. He laughed, looking into my eyes. We were inside each other's eyes. He said, I bet you can remember the day the sun was born, Grandma. <sighs> that's the kind of thing that's based on, you know, like based on a true story at the movies. That didn't actually happen, but something like that actually happened, and then, you know, then it turned into art. Okay, this one's called, it, same theme, The Woman Who Hands You a Gun. Don't think because I'm old, I'm not learning anymore. No, that's not how it goes. Right now, I'm on my way, leaving town to be a carny, a barker at the tattooed lady's tent flap, or the woman who hands you a gun at the shooting gallery or hoops to toss over baby dolls. It's got to be something I don't have to study or practice, something I can slip right into on-the-job training because I don't have that kind of time anymore. I'm saying I'll be an intern, an apprentice, not a student. I don't have time for that.
This one's called The Old Woman is Pissed Off Again. Because, again, her actual self has been denied. With a smile, of course, denial. Offered as a favor, a kindness, a sweetness. The speaker assuming she'll be flattered to hear that who she is, the old woman, what she is, an old woman, is not really, not now, not here, who or what she is. Oh no, not even close, says the cashier when the old woman asks for the elder discount on her grocery bill. The cashier smiles as those words slap the old woman, sliding her credit card along the sensitive rim of the register computer that will or will not approve of her. They always smile when they do this. She can see what they expect. She will accept denial, take erasure as the gift they mean it to be. They're giving her a gift, saving her from the awfulness of her own true life. And they want her to smile about it, join up, and pretend makeup, hair dye, cosmetic surgery. Pretend she's not who she really is, a woman grown old out in the world buying radishes, cereal, soap, cookies. Here's another. I realize he keep mentioning BT. So BT, this I guess this show is a, a little bit of a, um, a dedication to your absence and your former presence and hopefully your future presences right here in Portlandia. Um, and I'm speaking of the statue, not that show. This one's called The Old Woman Joins the Riot Crones, with many R's in it. And B.T. Shaw and Jody Stringham, who used to live in Oregon also in Eugene, created T-shirts um, that say Riot Crone across the chest. And they gave me one, bless them. And, of course, I love it and wear it. So the old woman joins the riot crones. When people say you must be able to laugh at yourself, they really mean you should laugh at what they think you are, what they want to call you. If they think old women are ugly and foolish, you must laugh at that. You are to smile in recognition of their accurate observation. If you don't, won't do what they want, be what they want. You have to be ready to fight, fight to be real. You'll need friends to laugh with when something is funny. Join up. We have t-shirts. This poem is called You Never Think It's Not What You Want. This is a December poem. I wrote this at the urging, not to say demand, of cartoonist writer all-around excellent human Nicole Hollander. Some of you may know her work as a cartoonist. She created the character Sylvia. Um, she has a wonderful collection out. Uh, it's an old one, a golden oldie uh, called The Whole Enchilada, which lot with lots and lots of her work. Um, she gave me permission to use some of her cartoons in a zine about abortion that I uh, put together some years back. And she's an old Chicago pal. So she was, uh, I don't even remember what the project was, something on her website, she was wanting poems. She sends me a note saying, uh, got a poem? Give me a poem. I said, I don't have one. She said, well, write one. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, okay. And this is the one I wrote for the December, whatever it was. You never think it's not what you want. 
We know it's wise to chew our food slowly, though long ago, in the wild, and also now at the drive-thru, this hasn't always been possible. So much that's wise seems so often not possible. Long ago and far away, early in the species, chewing slowly was a luxury or something for herbivores, the cud groups, not our zippy primate team of cousins. Chewing slowly could be dangerous. On holidays, though, a slow chew might save you from predators across the table. Long-toothed in-laws, former lovers, crazy neighbors, your own grown children, the typical assortment in December. That month of longest night and shortest light has way too many holidays. Food is featured every time, served at tables, handed round on small trays, displayed for grazing guests who say, yes, yes. December food is like toys, like gift wrap, like decoration, admired for its design shining in the glitter of sparkling lights that dramatize the clever art of its frosting, its stuffing or shape unnatural. So well prepared is all that food, so generously portioned and carefully contrived for delight, you never think it's not what you want, won't be what you can use, won't be what you need after the ball. When the party's over, the new year rung in. You really did get there with bells on. Your calendar looks just like last year. The months named January and so on. The weeks, again, all start with Monday, Tuesday. You dared to hope for something. You had some expectations. You made plans. You even thought the earth was your model, turning toward the light. But you forgot. It never stops. All of forever just keeps on turning. That one's for you, Nicole. Now let me see how much time I've got left, folks. I brought a couple extras just in case, and I want to tell you a few other things. So let me see. Oh, this is the one to close with, unquestionably. It's called Some of the Crucial Questions, Section W, Alpha Order. What's up? What do you mean? What do you think? What do you want? What? What can I do for you? What did you have in mind? What happened? What time is it? What did I ever do to you? What did you ever do for me? What do you have? What's going on? What's it all about? What's it to you? What's on? What's the difference? What's the score? Where do babies come from? Where are you going? Where yet? Where are you from? Where are my glasses? Where are the car keys? Where's Bambi's mommy? Where's the bathroom? Where's the opener? Where's the remote? Who are you? Who cares? Who finished the milk? Who won the game? Why? Why not? Will this be on the exam? Would you like some more coffee? There was a time, not recently, folks, when I thought 
oh, maybe I'll just go through the whole alphabet and do this with every letter. Yeah, well, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen in this particular lifetime anyway. Well, it turns out, because the time is good for this, that I can come off of that last one onto another uh, bit of uh, what I believe in the business is called humor. This one's called, Thank You for Your Patience. The old woman gathers her papers, sits down, and puts her feet up. She's ready for it now. Please stay on the line. Listen carefully. Our menu, like everything else you've ever known, has changed. If you know the extension of the person you want to reach, you may enter it now. Or not. That's up to you. To reach the main office, press 2. To reach the satellite office, press 3. To reach the security guard's cafeteria, press 4. To reach the psychoneurobiologist on duty, press 24-7. To reach the office where no one is ever available, press 5. To reach the office where only temps staff the phones, press 6. To reach the office in a country you have seen only in movies, press 8. To reach someone you knew in your freshman year of high school, press 9. To reach your sister, to whom you've not spoken in years, press the number of years. If you wish to speak to a representative, press the asterisk, which we call the star key, because asterisk sounds like it might not be American. Some of you, actually all of you, <laughs> will have to wait on hold. Your call will be answered after a very long time. While you are on hold, you have choices. For talk radio, choose R-U-S-H or N-P-R. For country music, press C and W on your keypad. For classical, press the letter B three times. To hear a marching band, press T-U-B-A. If you ever get the blues, and who doesn't? Press B-E-S-S-I-E. Your call is very important to us. Okay, that's the last one I'm doing for laughs on this show, um, but it's certainly not in life the last one I'll do for laughs. So I'm going to close with um, a more philosophical, more poetic sort of thing. This one is called, For All the Other Dances, I Was Perfect. That's what I heard a young girl say to her father as we passed each other in the doorway at Hot Lips Pizza. Going out, I was push. Coming in, they were pull. So it worked nicely, went quickly, and that's all I heard. I didn't hear the father's answer, which, if she were my child, would have been something like, hey, great, perfect is good, can't get any better than that. I thought the man was her father. Maybe he wasn't. I thought, because it was 6 o'clock on a Friday, that he was divorced from her mother and had picked her up for the weekend, which would start with pizza, a classic divorce dad opener. But maybe her mom, his wife still, was in the car with the baby or the rescue dog or both of them. Or maybe her mom was at home, the home they all lived in together, making salad to go with the pizza when they brought it home. That could happen. Then, walking on, I thought... What if she said, answers, not dances? What if she said, for all the other answers, I was perfect? What if it was a math test, 
not her dance class, in which various colorful costumes would be worn at the big recital coming up at the end of the month, halfway between Mother's Day and Father's Day, just as the girl would be between them, always, if I was right the first time. And that's it, folks. That is tonight's Poetry and Everything show, a reading of poems by Judith Arcana, read by Judith Arcana, still startled at the very thought of it. Next month's Poetry and Everything, the final monthly show of this slightly more than three-and-a-half-year run, will air on January 27th, five days after the anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's ill-fated road decision. Portland's estimable Patricia Kahlberg will join me to talk and read about reproductive justice, abortion access, and the lack thereof in the United States. Thanks for listening, folks. Remember, support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. Good night. Join KBOO by December 31st and receive free gifts and prizes from the Give Guide. Just click the donate banner on the KBOO app to keep community radio strong and vibrant in Portland and beyond. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Portland's Folk Festival on Friday, January 10th and Saturday, January 11th, 6 to midnight at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland. Portland's Folk Festival is an all-ages celebration of folk and Americana music in Portland. Friday performers include Anna Tibble, Cedar Teeth, Glitter Fox, and more. Saturday performers include Horse Feathers, The Get Ahead, and more. Again, that's Portland's Folk Festival, Friday, January 10th, and Saturday, January 11th, from 6 to midnight at the Crystal Ballroom, 1332 West Burnside Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. When we meet, there won't be winter. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the SJAC Holiday Fundraiser and Open Hours Launch Party on Sunday, December 29th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Social Justice Action Center in Portland. The Social Justice Action Center provides community space, access to a commercial kitchen, and now new open hours. The launch party will provide information about new programs, opportunities to volunteer, and more. Again, that's the SJAC Holiday Fundraiser and Open Hours Launch Party on Sunday, December 29th at the Social Justice Action Center, 400 Southeast 12th Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO is a proud co-sponsor of the Portland Folk Music Society 2019-20 concert season. Kate Lee and Forrest O'Connor kick off 2020 on Friday, January 17th. They are co-lead singers and primary songwriters for the Grammy Award-winning O'Connor Band. That's Kate Lee and Forrest O'Connor, Friday, January 17th at 7.30 p.m., doors at 7.00 
at the Reedwood Friends Church, 2901 Southeast Steel Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Stay tuned for the Holy Crowley Hour. Good evening, and welcome to the special Christmas Eve Eve edition of the Holy Crowley Hour. 